Hello, everyone. This is Volts for January 19th, 2024. Michigan targets clean electricity and faster permitting. I'm your host, David Roberts. In the 2022 elections, something big happened in Michigan politics. For the first time in over 40 years, Democrats won a trifecta, control of the governorship and both houses of the legislature. Longtime Volts listeners can undoubtedly guess what happened next. Before the end of their first year in office, the new Democratic majority, thin as it was with just a one-vote advantage in both the House and Senate, passed a sweeping, ambitious package of clean energy bills. Among them was a new clean energy standard that would target 100% clean electricity by 2040, a bill reforming the Public Utility Service Commission so that it formally takes climate and health into account, and perhaps most intriguingly, a bill that would move clean energy permitting decisions from the local to the state level, in the process effectively banning the local moratoria that had been popping up across the state. Michigan is an extremely significant state in U.S. politics, a blue wall state that the Dems need to win the Electoral College, a state that has seen manufacturing, specifically auto manufacturing, hollowed out due to globalization, the home of one of the party's rising stars and Governor Gretchen Whitmer. So its lurch in a green direction is worth following closely. To discuss the history of these bills and some of the details they contain, I contacted State Senator Sam Singh. Singh has a long and rich history in Michigan politics. He was the youngest person ever elected to East Lansing's city council and the first person of color to serve as its mayor. He was the first Indian American elected to the Michigan House and the first to serve as its minority leader. And in 2022, he became the first Indian American elected to the Michigan Senate. He is a longtime champion of progressive causes and a force behind this legislation, so I was eager to talk to him about what the bills do, what they mean for state utility regulators, how they balance speed with local input in permitting, and what's in store for next session. Okay, then, Michigan Senator Sam Singh, welcome to Volts. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. This is very cool. One of my favorite genres of Volts podcast (laughs) is uh, talking to state leaders about cool things happening in states. As you know, following the federal government is a recipe for madness. So this is like a little oasis (laughs) for me. So Michigan passed late last year a big package of clean energy bills. Before we get into the details of some of those, maybe you could just tell us, um, just as an overview, what's gone on in the last four or five years of Michigan politics that has made this possible? Like these are very big and elaborate and well thought through bills, and they passed relatively quickly after the after the 2022 election. So they must have been you know, people must have been mulling them over before this. So what's kind of the recent political history here? Sure. You know, I'll go back to 2016. Uh, at that point in time, Michigan was uh, had a Republican governor, Governor Snyder, 
I, as a Democrat, was in the minority in the uh, state house as well as the state Senate. And we were uh, looking at energy policy then, uh, and we were, um, Democrats were trying to find a way to expand uh, renewable energy and energy efficiency programs within uh, that conversation. And for a long time, uh, the Republicans refused to negotiate with Democrats, trying to see if they could find a solution on their own, uh, and eventually got to a point after almost two years of, of discussion as we were getting to the end of our term, uh, there was finally a uh, recognition that they couldn't pass it with Republican-only votes. So they needed Democrats to come to the table. And so we were able to stand together as uh, a Democratic caucus, and we fought for some minor expansion in our renewable energy uh, standard. We went up to 15 percent. Oh, up to 15. What was, yes. What was uh, it before then? Yeah, I think it was at 5%, if I remember correctly. <laughs> and so, you know, it wasn't bold policy we were making back in 2016 <laughs> under uh, the Republican administration. But And then we also expanded our energy efficiency programs to 1% of, of annual sales of any of the utilities that were overseen by our Public Service Commission. And I will say that even though uh, these were modest and, you know, for a lot of my colleagues in, in other states who were doing much bolder things back in 2016, this was the first time we saw a Republican-only legislature and governor, at least for a long period of time, actually see an increase. Uh, we actually started that session with uh, the original bill actually repealing any standards for uh, energy efficiency. <laughs> that or, odious 5% standard that the utilities were suffering under. That's right. <laughs> and so we, um, you know, so that's, that was the context of where we were in 2016. And uh, I was the lead Democratic negotiator on behalf of our, our caucus. And uh, so I, you know, learned a lot about energy policy during that period of time. I wasn't on the Energy Committee. I uh, had introduced some bills uh, dealing with energy efficiency, but not on as deep uh, of a dive as I had to put in there. And so because of term limits in Michigan, I had to take a four-year hiatus uh, before the, my Senate seat opened up. And, you know, I got elected uh, in 2022. And when I got sworn in in uh, January of 23, you know, I knew that I wanted to continue on energy policy, this time really focusing on doing something bold. Yeah, and we should we should just note in case anybody didn't get the news uh, in twenty twenty two, Michigan elected a Democratic trifecta for the first time in forty a long time. Yeah, for the first time in a long time in Michigan, you had a Democratic governor in both houses. That's right, and so that really I think allowed us uh, an opportunity. But prior to us uh, getting elected and getting the the legislature under Democratic control, uh, we had Governor Whitmer get elected in in twenty eighteen, and so. In her first term, you know, she began to do a lot uh, around energy policy and climate issues, uh, obviously around doing executive orders mm -hmm. uh, and executive directives. She uh, also then developed the My Healthy Climate Plan by bringing together a, a very diverse set of stakeholders, um, talking about how we can do much more things uh, sort of in the space of the legislature, but also within state government. Obviously, in 2022, once uh, the elections happened, now she had a Democratic House and a Democratic uh, Senate that was willing to talk about these issues in a very different way. And so we uh, spent the first quarter working on a number of other issues, but 
uh, as we were getting ready to go on uh, spring break, we made a commitment that we would begin to take a look at codifying a number of the elements of her healthy climate plan by putting a democratic spin on some of those uh, items. And so shortly after we got back in April from our, our uh, two-week uh, legislative break, Senate Democrats introduced uh, what we were calling our Clean Energy Future Plan. And it was a series of bills um, taking a look at a variety of different areas. But obviously, the goal standard was to create a clean energy standard to expand the uh, energy efficiency work that we've been doing uh, and then making some modifications so our uh, Public Service Commission could do more. Uh, and there was other bills that were part of that package. And so um, we introduced that. There was a um, the governor held a uh, climate summit uh, where those bills were sort of first talked about by a set of stakeholders. And it really wasn't until the summer uh, and then moving into the fall that we had very significant negotiations with, uh, with environmental groups, with uh, utilities, both the larger investor-owned utilities, but our small co-ops, uh, as well as our municipal and a variety of other uh, stakeholders, labor groups, and, and others. And so... Uh, when we got back after the, the spring recess, the focus really became that we needed to get the clean energy uh, package done, and we wanted to get it done in 2023. And so that was the, the focus. I'm just curious, in the end, did you get any Republican votes for any of these? You know, I was hoping that in a couple areas, especially around um, energy efficiency, where I knew that there was some uh, Republican uh, support around that. We also made some uh, modifications to siting. We were, uh, I was hoping at one point in time early in the process that maybe we would have got uh, some Republican support. But uh, unfortunately, uh, this became, I, I think, uh, a focal point for uh, the Republican minority. Mm. I think they saw this as a campaign issue uh, going into uh, next year's House elections. And uh, it was clear that they were not going to negotiate with us. We're not going to provide any votes and so, especially over the summer, once we knew that and understood that, it made it very clear that at this point I was negotiating amongst Democrats uh, in, in both chambers and trying to find the, the common ground that would get everybody on board. Got it. So a bunch of bills here to talk about. In some ways, the one you call the centerpiece is, I guess, kind of the, the least interesting. I mean, it's awesome, the clean energy standard. But at this point, like this, this is a policy that has basically been replicated now in numerous states. You can almost just kind of pull it off the shelf. Although um, you have some interim targets that are, I think, really ambitious. So it's 50% renewables by 2030, 60% renewables by 2034, and then 100% clean by 2040. I know there was a little bit of controversy around what counts as clean. How did that resolve? I know a couple of sources are in there that some of the environmental community is not a big fan of. Did that did that prove a, a, a sticking point? Yeah, that was that was a large part of some of the negotiations within uh, you know the Democratic circles uh, in our caucus in, in both chambers. Uh, you know, for example, many states, uh, obviously in Michigan, we did the same. Uh, include. Uh, nuclear right. uh, as part of uh, clean energy. It is, you know, a clean energy resource, but there were a number of environmental justice organizations who don't believe that nuclear is is, is an appropriate uh, utilization. We have a significant deployment of nuclear already 
uh, here in the state of Michigan. And so it, from a pragmatic sense, taking that off the table uh, didn't make a lot of sense. But um, uh, so we wanted to ensure that that uh, continued. You know, we had some debate around biomass and how we take a look at that. You know, obviously we have, like many states, a lot, a lot of landfills and a lot of methane coming off of those landfills. And, you know, there were certain groups that didn't feel that it was appropriate for us to capture the methane, you know, and turn that into energy. But, you know, there were some environmental groups who did. So it was sort of, you know, that sort of divide where, you know, I think pragmatic groups who said, hey, you know, some of these uh, pieces were already in law back in the 2016 law. And so we wanted to not, you know, push industry out of business. But we also know it's a very small part of the overall energy, you know, creation here in the state. But we wanted to also ensure that. But we also then looked at our sister states that had already gone ahead of us, right? Illinois and Minnesota here in the Midwest had already moved on their clean energy standards. And, you know, they also had included biomass. And so, you know, we felt comfortable, uh, you know, moving forward on some of that. Um, but there was definitely a lot of debate on some of those outlining pieces on, you know, whether or not that should have been included or not. Can I ask uh, about nuclear, just like in your mind, was this mainly about counting existing nuclear toward the total clean, or is there some thought about building new nuclear in, uh, in Michigan? Well, you know, we, we had a, a, a nuclear facility called Palisade, which was in the southwest part of the state. Uh, that went offline a few years ago, but there's always been an ongoing discussion about potentially bringing that back online. And, um, you know, the, the governor had, had uh, put some resources in the last budget. I know there's been some uh, conversations with uh, the Department of Energy. There was a buyer uh, there. And so, you know, we also wanted to facilitate not only the existing, but if this facility came back online, we wanted to allow for that. But we didn't put any restrictions, you know. if So if there is some additional, you know, uh, I know everyone's talking about the smaller scale uh, nuclear that might be a, a potential. This doesn't prohibit that. But, right. you know, I think overall, as we all know, the permitting process, the timing, the cost makes other things like renewable uh, wind and storage and other types of things more cost effective in the end. Right. And the one other piece of this that looked like it caused a little bit of controversy is about community solar. I know a lot of states have, have done kind of a carve out for community solar so you can have a, like a solar project owned by a third party that is, you know, sort of like tied to a local area and, and locals can invest in it. And there's nothing about community solar in the bill. Is that on your radar as something for later or was there some reason that it didn't get make it in? Yeah, you know, one was there was a set of community solar bills that had already been introduced in the legislature prior to um, us doing the, the significant negotiations. And that was one that was creating, I think, some some tension points within the um, the legislature and with the as we were talking with the administration and trying to find the landing spot. And so that was one of the pieces as we were beginning to get closer and closer to our deadline, which was, you know, session was going to be ending the first week in November. It was one of those pieces that we reluctantly said, well, this is probably going to have to go on in a, in a future uh, session. You know, we're back in a new session uh, now here in the new year in 2024. And so, yeah, we weren't able to find the right landing spot uh, for that. And I know a number of groups that were focused on the community solar aspect 
uh, we're disappointed uh, that we weren't able to find uh, common ground. Now, I do think there's some opportunities uh, for them, you know, even before uh, we look at uh, new legislation, you know, we do have some of our marketplace, uh, we do have a 10%, you know, sort of independent market uh, that's been uh, deregulated. You know, those providers are now required under uh, this, this new law to also hit some renewable energy targets, uh, as are the, you know, investor-owned utilities and, and others. And so I won't be surprised that in that space that you could see some community solar arrangements mm-hmm created as well as we take a look at that topic here in 2024 and beyond. A sort of quasi-political question. How how much was, you know, everybody's talking about IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, and the sort of, you know, kind of the, the, the giant pot of federal money that it has kind of uncorked. Was that, how big a role did that really play in your thinking and planning here like was that was that on your mind like trying to tap into some of that money or or did you just bracket that no i I think it was a significant reason why we actually got this done in the timing that we did get it done you know i think whenever you're doing something big and bold you know there's always this group of people that are like well we could spend a little bit more time why you know we can do this next year we don't have to resolve this and I, i think the sense that you know, there are these dollars and resources available at the federal level that right. if we don't take advantage of, you know, other states will and we won't get our fair share. And so, you know, as uh, we had a number of our stakeholder groups that, you know, utilize that as part of the reason why to do it this year uh, in 2023. And so I think that was a very convincing piece for some of my colleagues who might have wanted to take a little bit more slower, mm. a little bit more methodical approach uh, to this. You know, in past years, you know, as I mentioned, even in that 2016 rewrite of, of our energy policy, it took two years uh, to get it done. And so, you know, we obviously introduced these in April and we, were, we got them done and signed by the governor in, in November. Yeah, you put a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, it kind of <laughs> focuses everyone. That money wasn't there. I think there could have been, you know, this sort of desire to kind of push some of the harder parts of the conversation into 2024. That's the clean energy standard. Another bill I think that probably isn't maybe like as sexy for the public, but to me is of intense interest is uh, Senate Bill 502, which is about reforming the public service commission, the state public service commission, the state body that regulates utilities. I've, I've been doing a couple of pods. I just actually published today a pod with the lead regulator in Connecticut. So I'm, I'm very keen and interested in these state public service commissions, you know, getting a little more uh, ambitious and innovative. So 502 implements a number of reforms to the way Michigan's Public Service Commission operates. So to tell us a little bit about what what that does. Well, one of the things we had heard from the commission, you know, uh, as stakeholders were involved in our integrated resource planning, the IRP process, they would oftentimes bring up ideas and the commission would say, you know, this is an interesting idea, but we don't know if we have um, the legal bandwidth uh, within existing law. And so we kind of saw that happening time and time again. And so from a legislative perspective, we wanted to make sure that it was very clear. And so we wanted to make sure that the commission had the authority to take issues such as climate into their integrated resource planning as they worked with utilities. We wanted to make sure that health considerations Mm. could be taken into account uh, while they were doing their uh, work. 
We also wanted to make sure that affordability uh, was there. Um, we also wanted to make sure as there was new developments happening with energy production that you know we were taking a look at environmental justice, uh, especially those communities that have had you know a negative you know impact by past production. Well, how do we help support that transition uh, and so forth? And so, uh, five hundred two was really critical in um, providing a, a broader purview. Uh, for the commission to take in different ideas as part of the IRP process. I think it's probably one of the, uh, it's a game changer for, you know, um, for those that sort of follow this policy um, and want to make sort of inroads and be more equitable on how we take a look at a, a clean energy future here in Michigan. So we were really pleased that we were able to find the right landing spot for 502. That was one of the ones we spent probably more time on, you know, uh, the 100% standard and this because that was the most complicated part of, of the negotiations. Yeah, and I would imagine that the big utilities are quite sensitive about the, about this particular area of, of policy. Yeah, absolutely, right? And so, um, and that's why I think having the right, you know, compromises in the end, um, but at the same time pushing uh, this idea of equity, you know, we had a number of uh, key senators, uh, uh, Senator Sue Shank from Washington, Senator Erica Geis uh, from Taylor, Michigan, but really pushing those ideas of, of, of equity and making sure that we were helping the commission move in the right direction. We're really critical in making that that happen. Right. So just for listeners benefit, in case anybody's unclear about what we're talking about here. So utilities have to submit these integrated resource plans, basically telling the um, regulators, you know, this is what we're going to build. These are our targets. These are, uh, you know, this is what we plan to do for the next five years. And so what this bill does is just give regulators clear authority to take climate and health and equity and things like that into account when assessing those plans before they approve those plans. The reason I think this is important is because across the country, there are lots and lots and lots of state regulatory bodies who do not have the legal authority. Like they literally legally can't take climate into account when they're assessing those things. And this is like an obscure, I think, from a public, you know, from the public's perspective, but super important sort of um, fulcrum point for a lot of a lot of policy. So it's uh, yeah, this was to me one of the more surprising and interesting parts of the bill. So while we're on that subject of the, of the state regulatory body, another bill that is just to me the most fascinating and interesting part of all this is uh, House Bill 5120, which is about siting and permitting. So this is um, a very hot topic now <laughs> at, the, at the federal and state level, the, the slowness of permitting and the difficulty in citing, the sort of NIMBY opposition, the local opposition, et cetera. So basically, this bill says, rather than local communities, it is the state public utility commission that now can approve citing for projects. So tell us a little bit about why you did this and, and what this bill says. Yeah, and this is, I want to give, you know, credit to uh, my colleagues in the House. Uh, the citing bills, uh, the two bills that came over from the House uh, dealt with the citing question. They were done by Abe Ayash and Ranjeev Puri. And, and basically what we were seeing 
happen throughout the state is that you know, most of our decisions when it comes to critical energy infrastructure are already done by our commission. If you're talking about pipelines, uh, plants, uh, natural gas plants, you know, location, where, where pipelines go, and all that is all done by the commission. There's obviously input from the locals, uh, opportunity for public testimony and, and gathering of information, but in the end, it's done by, um, by the commission. And so it's really only been uh, these renewable uh, pieces that were sort of left to local governments. Do we know why that, that is? It seems like a weird exception. Yeah, you know, I really don't know the, the, the history of that, uh, but I, because it wasn't part of the initial sort of work of, of utilities and it sort of came on at the, uh, at the end, I don't know if you know, people had really thought through what communities might do or might not mm-hmm. do uh, in the process. And you know, we want to be really respectful to our local governments and uh, you know, work with those who are, are willing to find the right place. But what we ended up seeing is that in some communities, they were just outright banning it. It wasn't saying, hey, we're going to find the right place in our community to do this. They were just saying, hey, we don't even want to have the conversation. And that's where you know, I, I think we began to realize that one, we were going to con- have to continue down a very expensive path of continuing down the current energy um, pathway, or we can go this lower energy route by, you know, much more cost-effective uh, wind and solar and storage. And uh, so th- that's where attention point really came forward. So, you know, the final compromises, and there was a lot of compromises uh, between local governments uh, and the legislature in the final days uh, before those bills passed. So the process still starts at the local level. There are now standards uh, that are created at the state level that locals are required to uh, either adopt those standards uh, or if they decide they don't want to. And we have heard from some communities that they don't want to deal with this issue because sometimes it's a very tough issue Mm -hmm. in a small community, right? They'd rather have somebody else doing it. (laughs) They can allow the commission right from the beginning to do that. But if those communities who want to create their own ordinance, that they have some ability to do that. Uh, but they can't go over certain parameters. And if there's a conflict, then, you know, the commission would come in and, and, and finalize that. Right. So they can't implement standards that are more strict than the states. That's correct. And so, you know, we do believe that, you know, a lot of the developers will work with local communities. They want to, right? They want to make sure that these are being put in the right place. But at the same time, they don't want to just be told, hey, you can't come in at all. Uh, you know, we want to, we do believe in, you know, property rights. Uh, you know, I do believe if somebody has a, a property and they can, you know, put this in uh, on their uh, vacant land, uh, they should be able to do that, right? And so, you know, a local community shouldn't tell somebody that, hey, you can't do this at all uh, when it has an ability to be done and could be done in an appropriate way. So, you know, there's setback standards that are actually much uh, stricter than what is found in most states. Uh, so there was a lot of protections put in uh, for local governments uh, when all was said and done. But, you know, we want to ensure that, you know, those individuals who want to put uh, solar on their property uh, now have the ability to do so within these new state standards. Right. And so, of course, Republicans are framing this as sort of, you know, jackbooted <laughs> state government <laughs> thugs coming in and taking over local, you know, uh, telling locals what to do. So just to be clear, and you mentioned this before, but I want to kind of pull it out. Um, just because the Public Utility Commission has the final authority does not mean that local feedback and local 
desires and preferences are excluded, the, the Public Utility Commission, by law, has to hear from locals in this process. Yeah, absolutely. And the locals have a process. You know, we even included uh, pieces in there that the developer is required to um, put resources uh, into the community so the community can hire, you know, uh, legal staff to, you know, if they have questions about where the placement is and things mm. like that. So there are requirements uh, beyond just paying the, the landowner. Right. You know, there would be also community benefits uh, and resources that would have to go back to the whole community as well. That's part of this. And so, uh, yeah, so one that starts off with that there's got to be a person who owns land in that community who wants to see this move forward. So we're never going to put in a situation where the state is going to say, you know, this landowner has to put this in, right? And it starts with that landowner saying, I'd like to move forward with this um, project. And now it has a set of have rules and regulations uh, around it. But there are resources that are provided to locals to help them manage that process because many of them don't have the expertise to sort of be in front of the commission and so forth. Uh, so I think some of those pieces are pretty innovative in ways of making sure that the locals have the resources not only to do this, but when it happens, to make sure that it's more than just the landowner and then the, the entity who's obviously they're going to receive some tax dollars for, you know, the, uh, the taxes uh, on, the, on the facility. Uh, but there's also additional benefits that are required to be given to the community. Right. Yeah. You mentioned these, these are called community benefit agreements. Maybe just explain what that is, because these are things that I think in, in, in other parts of the country or in other contexts are generally voluntary. But I think a lot of the better developers do them as a matter of course, just because they've learned that it's better to get in early and get some agreement early so you don't have a fight later. But maybe explain what a community benefit ag agreement is. Yeah, you know, we, we do this, you know, obviously in a lot of places, like you said, in some of the typical economic development, it's done on a voluntary basis between the developer and the community saying, not only are we going to develop this property, so you'll see uh, tax base uh, growth. And so therefore that comes to the community, but we're going to do other things in the community for the benefit of the larger community uh, and for individuals uh, and so forth. Um, so what we wanted to see happen here was that this was done on the proactive side. Mm -hmm. uh, we have seen, you know, unfortunately in Michigan, you know, uh, some previous developments that were not as um, thoughtful uh, by developers that, yeah. you know, I think put uh, a bad taste in a lot of local governments, uh, as well as with labor organizations in our state who, you know, labor groups were asked to come and testify on, you know, this and then, a group decides, hey, I'm not going to use, you know, labor as part of the build out uh, of this facility and, and so forth. So for us, you know, we wanted to make sure that the developer was having all of these conversations on the front end. The community knew once they were moving forward what they were going to get versus some of it sometimes being very vague and, and so forth. And so this was, uh, I think, another key part uh, in getting the final support of, of legislators. Many people, including myself, have a lot of rural areas uh, of the state. Uh, you know, not all of this will be done in rural areas. Uh, you know, we have this kind of, uh, we have to do all of uh, this, uh, you know, in a variety of different areas. So there's going to be a brownfield component on how we do more additional solar. I think there's some opportunities to take a look at big box stores and mm. empty parking lots and things like For that. Sure. So that might be another set of policies that we look at here in 2024. We've got a lot of state land, you know, that we're beginning to look at how we use solar uh, and other 
uh, types of development there. So there's some opportunities to do more in some other spaces, but you know, we wanted to ensure that community benefits were part of the conversation. Right. And these community benefits can be, you know, like helping to fund a library or just anything really. Yeah. They'll, they'll work with the developer to, to develop that on their own. And you're also requiring um, labor agreements. Is that in the bill? Yeah, that's right. That was in these, um, not only in the these citing bills, but there were also some pieces in uh, that other part of the Public Service Commission bill. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to ensure that, you know, these are built to the best standards. Um, and, you know, especially when you're taking a look at these utility grade, you know, projects, um, you know, you need to have people that are that are developing these that have the experience and so forth. You know, all our larger uh, investor-owned utilities are already using organized labor to sort of build out their pieces. And so this, I think, will continue to ensure that those higher standards are met as additional uh, solar and other products come online. And labor, in the end, was a proponent of the bill, came around? Yeah, they, they eventually became supporters uh, of the bill. Uh, you know, a lot of our dialogue and discussion, uh, you know, we did have a set of conversations with labor. I know environmental groups and labor had a number of conversations amongst themselves and with the utilities. You know, one of the other bills I know we'll get to, uh, Senate Bill 519, was another critical part of, you know, getting labor's support in the end uh, for this package. One other question about this, it's maybe a slightly sensitive question, but like one of the reasons that these local moratoria started happening, you know, and there's been a couple of sort of not enough, I think, but a few media exposés about this is that there's a very intentional and very well-funded effort on the right to basically go into these communities and spread fear and misinformation. And that's sort of, that's what is driving, I think, a lot of this rural resistance, you know, it's a free country, so people can say what they want. But like, is there is there anything you can do about that? Or do you like, how do you think about that? We saw a lot of that where, you know, there was a lot of misinformation. There's still misinformation being, you know, put forward on what even these bills do. Right. There's this sense that, you know, um, that the state could come in and force a property owner to do this. That's at least <laughs> the, the thing that they're trying to suggest them. Everyone knows it's not true. There's even language that specifically prohibits eminent domain, um, you know, <laughs> acquisition in the in the actual bills. But that doesn't stop, you know, some of these uh, kind of astroturf groups from coming in and trying to scare people and turning this into more of a campaign issue. Uh, and that's, I think, one of the reasons why, you know, I, I will say that I've had, you know, elected officials who are Republicans who see this as a benefit to the tax base, to their communities, saw, you know, the the issues in their communities. And, you know, I think for some of them, I'm not saying for all of them, but for some of them, I think they are almost glad uh, that they don't have to sort of deal with that misinformation uh, (laughs) and have have someplace else. Take this off our plates. Yeah. You know, that you can blame the state or somebody else. Right. Because in the end, I mean, a lot of people, um, you know, believe in property rights and, you know, and it, I think that's a difficult thing uh, for, for some of my conservative uh, colleagues as well as, you know, some of my 
district where they believe in the property right and the right of the individual, but then they've been given this misinformation, so it scares them about, you know, what they should do or how they should, you know, be able to utilize renewable energy. Yeah, and I don't know if the state really has any role in this, but it seems like at the very least developers or somebody should be at least have their eye on the kind of public relations side of this. And just it could be just as simple as like getting people from communities where these things have gone in and communities have benefited and communities are happy to have them. Just have those people go speak to the next community. Like, is anybody is anybody thinking about information warfare on the other side? I mean, I think that's, I would say, one of the critiques, uh, you know, for the developer community uh, was that they did not do enough of that in a proactive way. And in many instances, they didn't work with, um, you know, local communities to do things beyond just the relationship with the landowner, right? They could have been voluntarily doing community benefit pieces. So other people in the community saw the benefit uh, for uh, the installation. As I mentioned, you know, there were some instances where, you know, they didn't do a real good job uh, of taking a look at setbacks and other types of things. And you better believe the other side is going to find every one of those <laughs> stories and blast them out. Yeah. And so I do agree. I do think there's an educational component that, you know, I'm sure that the commission and others will will take a look at. But I really do feel it's really Part of the developer community, the environmental community, and others have to really get that message out. Uh, the government can only do so much, but I, I agree with you. Like that peer-to-peer learning, that community-community learning, where the benefits are, how they've seen the positive uh, nature of this. Uh, you know, when we heard from you know farmers who you know really have saw a benefit by utilizing some of their farmland uh, for solar. You know, they were. Yeah, I mean, as we said with Ira and, and everything else. That's a big pot of money that they're tapping into. Like, yeah, absolutely. Bigger than it used to be. Both the Senate Bill 502, which reforms the Public Service Commission in a bunch of ways, and this bill that we're discussing, which puts siting and permitting power in the hands of the Public Utility Commission, both those, I think, serve to raise the salience <laughs> and importance uh, of the Public Utility Commission. So are those appointed positions or elected or like how and who appoints them and how are you thinking about, you know, because just like the decision of who's on on that commission now is a bigger deal maybe than it used to be? Well, I think it's always been a big deal. In Michigan, yeah, right. you know, our Public Service Commission is a three-member board. It is um, appointed by the governor. So that's why, you know, these ideas, especially putting the legislation into effect and making things clear, you know, was very important for us uh, as part of this uh, this process. I know some other states elect, you know, their public service commissioners and so forth. But Michigan, it's an appointment by by the governor. Got it. OK, the other big piece here is Senate Bill 519, which creates a just transition office. So tell us a little bit about the thinking behind that and what that office will do. Yeah, we were able to take a look at a couple states, uh, Illinois, uh, as well as Colorado, who have created just transition offices. In both instances, they're fairly young and just getting started. But Mm -hmm. uh, the the principle behind this is that uh, there will be um, changes in the types of jobs uh, that will uh, be available. Uh, you know, we saw this as as utilities were moving off of coal, which was very, 
you know, intensive from a employee perspective. And yeah. then move to natural gas, you needed less employees. As you're moving to more um, storage or, or solar, you even need less employees. And so what we wanted to ensure that we do is that we had somebody within the state that could coordinate with um, the utilities to ensure if there was going to be a transition, uh, let's say that people needed different type of training, that we could then use the state dollars that we have available for training uh, workforce development or the federal dollars that flow through our local uh, workforce boards that we can then help galvanize those dollars and resources to ensure that as these transitions happen, that the workers are made whole, if there's ways of training them for the new jobs and so forth. I will give a lot of credit to our larger uh, investor-owned utilities in the state as they've moved off of coal. They've done that without any significant layoffs. Hmm. You know, they've done a lot of retraining. That's because of this IRP process where you're looking five years ahead. Right. You know that this, uh, you know, coal plant is going to be uh, decommissioned at a certain point in time. And so, you know, they were able to retrain people or if people knew that they were going to retire. They might, you know, provide some incentive to retire a little early and, and, and so forth. So, you know, for us to have that kind of statewide office uh, was very important. And so, as I mentioned, two other states, at least that we were, were looking at as a model. But as we were having our conversation, you know, we also said, hey, the energy sector is not the only sector that's changing. Yeah, for sure. You know, obviously here in Michigan, uh, our automotive sector is, uh, you know, been who we are uh, as a as a state and as an identity. And as we're moving away from, you know, the combustion engine to um, electric vehicles, there is another transition happening. Also fewer employees. Fewer employees, uh, different types of, of parts that need to be developed and so forth. And so we made sure that that was added. So we're the only state now that allows for not only energy transition for this office to look at that, but we're also saying, hey, automotive transition, whether it's the, one of the main kind of uh, auto companies or one of the suppliers that will work with those groups. Again, take a look at the training and technical assistance dollars, see how we can make people um, uh, help them make uh, their transition uh, into this future. And we left uh, a piece and we didn't want to start off with trying to do everything mm -hmm. uh, through this office, but we also gave the ability for the office if they saw other trends that were happening that were changing uh, the makeup of, of business or the workforce. Uh, and one of the topics that came up in our, uh, in our hearings was uh, with the advent of uh, AI uh, all throughout, you know, different industries and how that's going to, you know, impact uh, potential jobs and so forth. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised, uh, maybe not in year one or two, as they're focused on these two pieces that are squarely put into uh, this office. But I wouldn't be surprised if AI and some other types of changes don't uh, be added to some of the focus points of, of this new office in state government. Uh, it'll be a, an interesting site of uh, innovation, maybe in coming years. And this was hashed out with the labor unions, too. I assume they're, they were heavily <laughs> invested in this piece of things, trying to look out for their members. Yeah, that absolutely was, I, I think, the, the final piece that, you know, got them from some uh, level of opposition uh, to eventual support of, of the package. So those are the big pieces. And you've sort of um, in passing mentioned a few things, but what are the, in your mind, things you didn't get to that you would like to do on the energy and climate front in this coming session or soon? 
Yeah, you know, as we already discussed, you know, we weren't able to find a landing spot for community solar. So I know that will be an ongoing uh, conversation uh, here in the state. Um, you know, we, we talked briefly about, uh, you know, should we develop a clean fuel standard uh, here uh, in Michigan? Mm. Uh, we've also been talking about sustainable aviation fuel and how we, you know, incentivize our airline industry here in Michigan, having, you know, a significant hub in Detroit to sort of move in that uh, that direction. You know, we're still trying to figure out what is the role of building decarbonization. Um, yeah. So I think there's a lot of, you know, really big and heavy topics on the on the energy side. But on the other side of climate, you know, whether it's kind of water issues like water affordability, but making sure that we're protecting our water because of the changing climate, um, you know, I think that will be another significant issue that we we look at here in, in 2024 as well. A big piece of IRA and a big piece of the federal legislation that has passed recently is about clean manufacturing, about trying to sort of restart <laughs> America's manufacturing uh, sector and bring more manufacturing home. I know in Michigan, that's a very, you know, that's been a big part of the state's history and identity. And I keep reading about, you know, IRA is bringing all these battery factories to the South and Midwest, and there's new EV manufacturing facilities. Is any of that coming to Michigan or is that on your mind? How are, and have you, is there anything in these packages that's meant to induce manufacturing to come to Michigan or how are you thinking about the sort of manufacturing end of things? Well, you know, there are other programs within state government that are focused on that. So these bills don't specifically address uh, those items, but, you know, our governor has been very bullish about, you know, trying to attract more uh, EV battery development, uh, taking a look at bringing uh, chip production uh, to Michigan. So, you know, we've had, uh, I would say, nine or so significant investments of development here uh, in Michigan uh, over the last three years, a lot in the last uh, year where we are, you know, utilizing other uh, economic development tools to try to bring some of that development here to Michigan. Obviously, you know, a lot of that will be spread out uh, across uh, the country, but we want to mm -hmm. ensure that Michigan gets its fair share. And so there's been a strong focus around our economic development work, uh, our Michigan Economic Development Corporation called MEDC. That's been a significant part of their work there. So, you know, obviously, the clean energy bills really focused around our, uh, you know, public service commission and uh, that. But our, our economic development uh, partners and, and state government are, are focused sort of on that, making sure that we're bringing clean energy manufacturing uh, and other types of manufacturing back uh, to the state. Let me ask a question, getting back to the PSC a little bit and back to utilities a little bit. This is something that's come up when I when I threw it open for questions on social media. This is something that came up a couple of times and, and I've read a couple articles on it about. So residential utility customers in Michigan pay relatively high rates compared to other Midwest states. And the big investor owned utilities have sort of worse records on blackouts and, and, and service interruptions than a lot of utilities in the Midwest, and both those big investor-owned utilities, as is customary <laughs> in many states, plow hundreds of thousands of dollars into the legislature, into the governor's office, into politics in general. 
So I know in some other states, and in Connecticut is the, the big example that I just covered, there's been some attention to trying to put a little distance between the utilities and the politicians, trying to rein in the utilities in terms of their lobbying and political influence, in terms of their ability to use ratepayer money to lobby. Is any of that on your mind? Do you feel like the utilities have undue political influence? And is there anything on the horizon to kind of address that? First, you know, going back to the, the first element where you talked about a lot of the outages uh, that have occurred here over the last, you know, 24 months uh, in, in Michigan, you know, there is a set of uh, accountability measures that um, were separate from this conversation uh, on clean energy that uh, the legislature is taking a look at. I, I know my colleagues in the House, Elena Scott is the, the chairwoman of uh, the Energy Commission, she had a, a significant task force that uh, spent the entire summer kind of going across the state, pulling together ideas on utility accountability. Oh, interesting. And, you know, my understanding is, uh, you know, we were obviously so focused on the clean energy uh, pieces of this that, you know, she at one point had told, uh, I think, people that there could be as much as 13 or 14 bills that she was considering. Whoa. Um, I don't know <laughs> if, if, you know, she's still thinking of that pathway uh, or not. But I, I think, you know, we would welcome some additional accountability measures uh, by the legislature. Again, our focus, right, uh, you know, last uh, fall was really on trying to get this clean energy piece done. But I wouldn't be surprised to see some accountability uh, measures uh, put into place to ensure that we're getting some of the best pieces of coverage here in the state. We also, um, in some of our bills, you know, really wanted to make sure that our low-income uh, residents were being, you know, helped out. And so, you know, we didn't talk specifically about the energy efficiency bill, which was Senate Bill 273. But one of the provisions in that bill that I'm really proud of is that it requires uh, all of the utilities to have at least a minimum spend of 25% in low-income uh, communities. Um, and sometimes, you know, that's been difficult uh, to see happen, you know, and we want to sort of ensure that we're starting at that 25% and sort of building up over time. But this is the first time in Michigan that we have at least a minimum spend Interesting. that we are requiring. And so, you know, that's another part of that accountability that, you know, we don't want just the clean energy future to be ha helping, you know, individuals or, or people that are, are more affluent. We want to ensure that everyone has access to this. And so that was one of the reasons why our energy efficiency programs, I think, were really important for this is we can, if we can help low-income families, you know, uh, reduce their um, consumption, um, that's going to be a significant cost savings for, for them. And so that's one of the pieces that's also, I think, something we're beginning to also continue to look at here in, in 2024. Interesting. Yeah. And, and this actually uh, raises another question that came up a couple of times, which is, um, aside from electricity, heat is a big deal in Michigan. It's pretty cold there. <laughs> and I know a, a big piece of uh, household expenditures as well. Is there any talk about um, something like a clean heat standard, some way to begin dialing back on the fossil gas network? You know, there's obviously as part of the, um, you know, energy efficiency pieces, you know, I, I think there's, you know, ability to, you know, make some transition. We still have, you know, many of our homes that are focused on 
propane, um, you know, we'd like to obviously see, you know, some changes there. We also allow for the first time um, as part of our um, energy efficiency legislation, people can begin to uh, utilize heat pumps and, and other types of new technology that weren't allowed under uh, the previous 2016 laws. So, yeah, we're, I think we're trying to uh, address a number of, uh, of issues. You know, I'm not going to suggest that, even though I'm very proud of uh, everything we accomplished last year, that, you know, we got everything done. You know, I think there's obviously going to be more more opportunity. One of the things that, you know, we did do an expansion of, we have a, a Michigan Energy Assistance Program for low-income uh, families who, you know, get behind on their on their bills uh, and so forth. And we, you know, made sure that that program became permanent. Uh, there was a sunset on that. And so every few years it had to be reauthorized. We removed that sunset uh, last year. We're talking about how we expand that to more families. And so, uh, you know, that'll be another conversation we have here in 2024. But, you know, we're really, you know, wanting to ensure that, you know, every resident has uh, access to cost savings here. And that's why, you know, we required some things in the legislation, but then we're also taking a look at, you know, how we help some of our most vulnerable families that if they get behind on their utility bills, you know, that we can find a way to, to help them manage that uh, during that potential crisis that they might have. Yeah. Okay. As a kind of final question, you mentioned that you, many of your constituents are in rural areas. And I know that, you know, as the energy transition proceeds across the country, this is sort of emerging as kind of a key site of contest of, of fighting rural areas. I think you find a lot of people who will say, you know, a lot of people who will say rural areas are being asked to kind of bear the brunt of this and host all this new industrial equipment, but we're not getting cut in on the benefits. And I know that a lot of state bills have tried to sort of address that, but I'm, I'm just sort of curious as a general matter, what are you you know, sort of in terms of the temperature, the vibes <laughs> that you hear from rural constituents, how are rural people thinking about this? And and do you think there's a path to sort of this, you know, helping rural communities and them feeling more positively about it in a general way? Yeah, listen, I think that's part of this education process that uh, has to happen, right? I think part of that is, you know, us as legislators explaining what we did uh, and why and where the benefits are. I, I think sometimes, we have to go through a cycle of, you know, developers building some stuff, people seeing the, the community benefits go into place. Mm -hmm. They're beginning to see, hey, these setbacks are really uh, are being implemented. We're putting the berms up, right? All the types of things that, you know, had created, you know, some of the, the disdain in, in some communities that, you know, so I think giving people that opportunity to see that and feel that, I think at the same time, you know, I don't think we will be doing our job if we don't you know, ensure that everyone's doing their fair share. And as I mentioned to you, I do believe that there is a significant brownfield uh, component mm -hmm. for that we should be using. And, you know, we have a lot of uh, places where, you know, warehouses or factories have gone, uh, uh, they've gone out of business or they're not, not being used. We can now use that for utility grade uh, uh, solar. And so there's a lot of, I think, opportunity. But I do think if we do things well, we make sure that everyone has a component, whether it's in a suburban community, an urban community, or a rural community. I think over time, people will, will begin to see the benefit. But I think whenever there's change, especially when there's a very active misinformation, yeah. 
that's a big concern. I know when I talk to people and say, this is what we did, there's a lot uh, more level of comfort. I'm not saying that they agree with it, but there's a better sense of comfort when they realize all the protections that we, we put into place. All right. Okay, so um, you're going to tackle a lot more of this uh, this year, and then there will be elections. Maybe uh, you're not the right person to ask this, but how secure is the Democratic trifecta in, in Michigan? If you're if you're laying odds on on holding on to it, uh, how are you feeling about the about the 2024 elections? Well, you know, obviously the House is up uh, for election here. The Senate's not up till 2026. Uh. You know, so, you know, my, my sense is that we have a, a good chance of keeping majority. But, you know, just to remind your listeners, there's only a one seat majority in the House and a one seat majority. It's wild how much you got done with a one seat majority. I, I, I will say that's a, pretty remarkable. Yeah. And it's a testament to the leaders, our Senate majority leader, our Speaker of the House, you know, and, and many others of, of getting these things done. Uh, so listen, it'll be very competitive. You know, a lot of times I think some of our, our final seats are decided more by the top of the ticket than they are, um, you know, by just the uh, work of the candidate themselves. Yeah, yeah. And so we've seen some benefits of that when, when the governor did really well here in Michigan uh, in her reelect, uh, when, you know, President Biden did well here in Michigan. But when Secretary Clinton didn't do well here in Michigan in 2016, you know, we thought we would be gaining seats and we, we didn't gain any seats that year. Right. So, so, you know, there will be uh, an element of that. And so I, I think everyone's taking that very seriously. And so, you know, the campaigns starting this summer and fall will be a, a critical part. We did have, you know, here in Michigan, uh, two of our house colleagues won local elections. So right now the house is in a 54, 54 split until uh, some special elections. Now those are, those are fairly democratic seats, so you know we'll be back to fifty six, fifty four by you know April timeframe. But um, uh, yeah, so there's a lot of different dynamics that are happening in twenty twenty four that are a lot different than in twenty twenty three. It's good to see this happening, at least you know this much happening in a purple state, regardless of what happens next year. All right, uh, Senator Sam Singh, thank you so much for coming on and talking us through this. It's really cool what you all have done there. So uh, uh, thanks for sharing. All right, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.